Welcome to We're All Mad Here, a podcast aimed at dismantling the stigma surrounding mental health conditions, opening a discussion, and facilitating understanding one story at a time. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an amazing online psychology service, and what makes them different is that all you need to do is answer a few questions online to let them know what you're struggling with, and they'll find you a therapist who's specialized and effective in what you need. No running around or making phone calls or Googling. You can go to betterhelp.com slash allmadhere and you'll even get a discount on your first session. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Prash Puspanathan, a doctor of medicine at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, Australia. Prash has a master's in psychological medicine and is currently a psychiatric registrar with a special interest in the use of psychedelic substances in the treatment of psychological conditions. These conditions include PTSD, treatment-resistant depression, and the anxiety that comes with terminal illness. He speaks to us today about the profoundly positive effects that these substances can have and the barriers that currently exist when trying to do medical research about them. Enjoy. Hi, Prash. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Geneva. Thank you for having me. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself to start off with? Sure. So I, I'm, a, I'm a doctor, I'm a medical doctor, and I've been a psychiatry registrar at the Alfred Hospital for quite a few years. My main research interest, though, um, has always been in psychedelics, and particularly the therapeutic use of psychedelics um, as an adjunct, if you want to call it that, um, to psychotherapy. Uh, and that's, uh, that's been the field that I've devoted most of my uh, attention and interest to and continues to <laughs> occupy most of my time and something that I think is a, it's a worthwhile area of discussion. So you're involved in an area of research that you call psychedeliciatry, which I find particularly poetic. You're researching the effects of psychedelics on certain mental health conditions. Can you tell us a bit more about this research? Sure. Um, yes, psychedeliciatry uh, is a term that I coined. And yes, I do agree with the poetic nature of it, really why I coined it. Uh, the, the idea of it, uh, it isn't, the premise isn't new by, by any means. Uh, the idea is the use of psychedelics in psychiatry and not in the way you would use medications um, in general in psychiatry. I guess uh, psychiatry and psychiatrists have always used medications purely for the pharmacological effect of it, um, the effect of that that the medication has um, on the physiology of a person, on the, on the brain sort of biochemistry um, and the, the changes that it can affect. Whereas psychedelics, in terms of the way they use in, in therapeutics, uh, work quite differently. It's not the actual action of the substance uh, on the brain or on the neurotransmitters. Rather, it's the, the the greater effect, I guess, the phenomenological effect that it has on the person and the way they think. And utilizing the change in perspectives, the paradigm shifts um, that this can create to create a completely different psychotherapeutic encounter. Um, to allow them to see the world in a completely different way, to discuss the issues with a completely different lens, and, and as a result, um, to hopefully produce produce a shift in thinking that um, they would never have been able to achieve otherwise. So that's 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 the underlying premise. I would correct you slightly when we say that I've been I've been involved in this research because I mean that's been uh, the the one of the biggest issues we've had here in Australia. So. We've been trying to get this research off the ground in Australia for quite a while, quite a number of years. There's a 
it's a small group of us, psychiatrists, psychologists, um, who are uh, neuroscientists who are trying to get this research off the ground, but there have been significant hurdles that have prevented us um, from getting this through. Um, there are other countries in the world that have uh, made had a lot more progress in terms of getting this through, but we we still lag behind. Just something we can discuss later. We're, we're probably the closest we've ever been, although we have been saying that for a while. <laughs> but uh, I think, well, hopefully, within the next six months to a year, we might have the first true psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy trial in, in Australia underway, and that's an exciting time and something we look towards. What are some of the barriers that you're speaking about between you and doing clinical trials? The primary barrier, I guess, quite obviously and overtly, um, is the fact that unfortunately these substances are illegal. Um, as you can imagine, that, that, that poses quite a hurdle from, from a number of reasons. Firstly, it's access to these substances. They're not things that are readily available because of the illegal status. Um, secondly, trying to get approval from the, the TGA, which is a therapeutic uh, goods administration, the equivalent of the US FDA, trying to get regulatory approval to uh, get these substances imported for use in trials becomes very, very difficult. Um, and thirdly, getting a university or institution to support this research, to get it passed through ethics approval, um, and to then uh, have an umbrella under which to conduct this research uh, becomes incredibly, incredibly difficult because everyone's really hesitant um, to largely due to fears of uh, what this might look like or how this might be viewed. And uh, the bottom line in a lot of cases is that it comes down to the stigma associated with these substances that have thus far been yeah, quite a barrier, uh, well, enough of a barrier that we haven't gotten underway. So what are the substances specifically that you hope to be researching? So we could take guidance, I guess, from some of the research that's been that's already underway um, all around the world and definitely research that was very much underway back in the 50s and the 60s. LSD or, or acid um, is one of the substances Although the, that which is probably most studied at the moment would be psilocybin or the active ingredients in magic mushrooms or MDMA. And MDMA is an interesting one. Um, it's not a typical psychedelic. It's often referred to as a psychedelic-esque substance. It's, it's more common categorization as an, as an empathogen, um, so-called, because it tends to induce feelings of empathy, oneness with your fellow man, a, a sense of openness. Um, and that's that's one of the most researched substances at the moment around the world. It's shown particular uh, benefit for conditions like PTSD. And that's probably the substance that has had the, the most success in getting through regulatory approval um, and getting research off the ground. Now, there are, there are, there's also been evidence um, for, sub, for substances like ayahuasca. Now, that's slightly, a bit of a misnomer. Ayahuasca is a brew that's used in shamanic ritual throughout um, Central and South America and has been um, probably since the, 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 the origins of shamanic ritual uh, in these regions. Uh, but the active ingredient in them is something called DMT, dimethyltryptamine. And ayahuasca and, and DMT in its various forms has been, um, has also shown, uh, has, has seen evidence being demonstrated for use in things like addiction disorders. Um, although a lot of this research has been very much located in Central and South America for obvious reasons. So that's a, that's a few of the substances, I guess, that are currently being researched. You speak a bit about stigma. Can you clarify what you mean by the stigma surrounding these substances? So there's a, there's a lot of misinformation 
and misconceptions about psychedelics. If you perhaps if I ask you to think about your own misconceptions about psychedelics or what you've heard or what you've uh, always been told about psychedelics, there's a there's a there's a lot of uh, I guess fear mongering and horror stories about psychedelics. The idea that if you they, I mean I've I've heard things as 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 far far reaching as they punch holes in your brain and um they'll they'll go mad and you'll never come back and people will never be the same again and um or it sits in your system and it leaches into the water and God the the, the list of things that I've heard about these substances which have got absolutely no uh, no basis in reality. And it's it's worth considering where all of this came from. See, these substances didn't used to be viewed in this way. In fact, they were used in therapeutics for a very long time. Between, what, 1950 and 1970, the U.S. government sponsored studies. I think it was about 120 studies that have been documented as being sponsored by the U.S. government into the potential benefits of these drugs, um, if you want to call them drugs. And then in 1970, Richard Nixon signed the Controlled Substances Act, and that was it. They were all relegated to Schedule A status, the same category as heroin and amphetamines, and all research stopped altogether. And it took a good what, 30 to 40 years before um, any sort of research was, was able to be underway again. And when you think back as to why that all happened, uh, none of this was actually rooted in any sort of evidence. Uh, there, was, there was no evidence of um, any addiction potential with psychedelics. There was no evidence of overdose potential with psychedelics. A study from 2010, if I remember correctly, demonstrated that there was no statistically significant increase um, in psychotic switch. In what that means is that um, the proportion of people who developed a psychotic disorder um, in psychedelic users was exactly the same um, as that in the general population, which does debunk a lot of these these, these myths uh, about psychedelics. And so it does pose the question: Why? Why did these? Uh, why do they become illegal all of a sudden? Um, yeah, and when you look back, you think back about the time, so the 1970. This is right after Woodstock. 69. It was the peak of the hippie counterculture revolution. And psychedelics are very intrinsically entwined with this counterculture revolution, as you'll remember. It was all about flower power and free love and make love, not war. And that was a serious problem at the time. When you had a government that was trying to further the cause of well, the Vietnam War, um, and instead you had these substances that were, well, anti-war, that were anti-establishment, that asked the, the populace to question their preconceived notions of what was right and what was wrong and what should be done, and that preach perhaps a, a completely different way of, of, of living and, and subsisting in terms of uh, an anti-capitalist view, an anti-war view. And this is something that the establishment couldn't quite have at the time. And I know that I'm starting to trend into sounding like a conspiracy theorist, but often the greatest conspiracy theory is, is that it isn't. So what is the state of the research that currently exists in this area? So to look at that, you'll have to look beyond our shores, obviously, and unfortunately. Uh, some of the leaders are the United States, the, the UK, um, Germany, uh, the Netherlands, Belgium, um, Canada. And I'll, maybe I'll focus particularly on, on the States because that's, that's where a lot of the interesting research is being done. So... The, the University of New York and the University, I think, Southern California, both have trials into psilocybin, so magic mushrooms. And the two most interesting ones are the use for treatment-resistant depression and for the use in end-of-life terminal anxiety. If we just focus on the second one, perhaps, 
we we spend a lot of time teaching people how to live better. Um, we don't often teach people how to die better. And when people are being palliated, when you're in that end of stage, end of your life, there's a there's a lot of anxiety that comes with um, uh, it's 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 a very transcendental experience, I guess, to be faced with your own mortality. And our current way of thinking, our current cognitive models, which are all primed towards um, living and the way we live, don't exactly equip us um, to to face up to that reality of the end of your life. And this is where I guess that, that sort of paradigm shift, that that change in perspectives on mortality, on what life actually is, on what reality actually is, on on what becomes after, um, on it can be can be immensely useful, um, and that's why it's shown a lot of promise uh, in in the dying to to help them to guess face face death with a with a completely different lens. So that's that's to that, that's psilocybin, for example. Now, the University of Southern Carolina has been at the forefront of MDMA research. Um, there's a couple called the Mythoffers, and they pioneered some of the MDMA research for PTSD. And this is particularly clever, I think, in terms of getting research off the ground because they had uh, an active population of veterans, returned Vietnam War vets, and I guess, well, all war vets, um, who all had significant post-traumatic stress disorder, understandably so. Um, And this is the population that was initially recruited into the MDMA trials. And they found significant improvements um, in PTSD scores. And you've got to remember that PTSD is one of the most difficult conditions to treat. I put it in that category of almost universally treatment-resistive, um, a, a treatment-resistive condition because it becomes, it is it is just uh, historically so difficult to treat and there's hardly any really effective treatments out there. Uh, and they, the the scores, the reduction in PTSD scores, I mean, the first, the first paper they released which showed significant improvement at the uh, right after the treatment and at the three-month stage were in itself quite promising. Um, but then the second paper they released, which was I think about two and a half years on, that they showed sustained improvement at the two and a half year mark. For me, that was sensational because um, we I don't think we have anything else currently that demonstrates such efficacy. Uh, these studies have been hampered, or at least they're... they're um, the acceptance uh, university have been hampered by the fact that the sample sizes tend to be very small. But again, this is reflective of the struggles in getting any of these trials through. Um, there, there are a whole lot of hurdles, things like um, recruitment of sample of, of, of sample population, things like the cost that goes into uh, undertaking a, a, a trial with a substance that is technically illegal. Just just the cost of storing these substances and the security around it in itself can be really imposing uh, and a barrier to, to recruitment of a large sample size. But even at that small sample size, with the kind of results that they're showing there, uh, all it does point towards is the fact that more research doesn't need to be done. So it's happening, but slowly. Which leads me to my next question. What are your hopes in terms of the outcomes of the research that you want to undertake? Well, on one hand, and this is something I've thought about a lot, on one hand, it seems a bit unnecessary to be conducting a trial on um, on a substance for a condition that we already know demonstrates evidence. For example, if I was going to do an MDMA trial in PTSD, in a lot of ways, I'd be just replicating the study design that was already happening um, at the University of Southern Carolina. 
was trying to do a, a psilocybin study, I'd probably want to do it with end-of-life anxiety or with treatment-resistant depression um, to sort of replicate those results right away. Yes, in the longer term, I'd like to expand it out to some other conditions. But at the beginning, particularly when you consider the, the, the regulatory uh, landscape here at the moment, it makes sense to to get a trial underway and across that is going to demonstrate the kind of results that we would require so it to be a use case that will allow further research to get off the ground. And unfortunately, it becomes just a case of trying to get something through just to get that foot in the door as a sort of gateway to getting more research across, which isn't the way research is meant to be. Research isn't meant to be just to change public opinion. It's meant to enhance the body of knowledge in the literature. But Considering where we stand at the moment and the climate in, this, in Australia, particularly, that I think a lot of the, one of the main aims at the moment is to get something off the ground, demonstrate some results, demonstrate safety, demonstrate the capacity to conduct a trial with the kind of rigor that the scientific community requires um, to be able to do this safely, to be able to demonstrate a lack of negative outcomes, and to be able to demonstrate results that are compatible with that which is happening around the world. And the hope is that, again, once we get that through, that will open the doors to, one, getting more people interested, getting more of the community, apart from just a small band of us interested, as well as changing public perceptions enough that more institutions will perhaps be able to get on this pathway as well. And for my final question for you, I'd really love to hear a bit more about how you first got into uh, these concepts and what, what sparked your interest in the first place. So um, now we now we're going into the the region of um, of exposure, really. Something I'm quite happy to talk about. The I think there's this idea of coming out of the psychedelic closet, uh, which is which is something that most psychedelic researchers have grappled with for a long time. They've had to balance their own sort of professional credibility with their with the integrity towards their own work, and that's been a that's been a significant hurdle. But over time, I guess most of us have come to terms with the idea of that we need to be stand true to our beliefs. And so that's what I'm going to be doing here. My eyes were opened up to this, I guess, from personal experience, from experiencing psychedelics um, in a way that was different from the way most people experience psychedelics. I guess most people have uh, a past history of psychedelics as very sporadic, random, unguided, without intention you know, the idea of Charlie went to a party and someone slipped a tab of acid under his tongue, and whereas psychedelics can be utilized in quite a different way if they're approached with a particular intention, when they're approached not just as a recreational experience, but as an intellectual experience, as a means of self, self-exploration, um, as a means of achieving greater understanding of yourself and the world around you. And the point I still remember when I when I had that realization, when I had that understanding, it was a, a bit of a mind-blown type moment where the mind, as I know it, and this is for someone who's working in, in psychiatry, but the mind, as I know it, took on dimensions that I'd never understood before, um, took on capacity um, and possibility that I'd never understood before, and took on a huge amount of untapped potential that just seemed criminal um, to not explore. Uh, I'd, be, I'd be pushing the... Um, the the limits of what my profession will deem ethical to call it criminal negligence to not explore this, but uh, deep down, deep down, I do tend to feel sometimes that it, that it is. You know, we have all of these conditions that we call treatment resistant, treatment resistant depression, things like PTSD, which you can call treatment resistive, and yet there are these treatments out there which have demonstrated evidence. Yes, they've got these limitations. 
uh, in terms of sample sizes and uh, the kind of studies that we have out there, but they've demonstrated the capacity to help. How can we still call these treatment resistant when we haven't tried every treatment out there? That, to me, seems criminally negligent almost. And it was the combination of that personal experience, that realization, and then constantly grappling with the idea of not being able to, to utilize this that sort of led me towards taking this on as, as what I want to do for the foreseeable future. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Prash, for joining us today and telling us all about this highly interesting topic. I really appreciate your perspectives. Thank you, Geneva. Right, pleasure talking to you. No worries. Bye. Bye-bye.